Hello and welcome back to the Steph Gordon Show. I have a woman on the podcast today who is actually a really big deal (laughs) and she has a lot of incredible connections and I'm really excited to have her on to talk about a topic today that is really close to my heart and that I speak about with my clients all the time, but that probably doesn't get enough airtime for how much of an incredible growth tactic it actually is. So I have Natalie Giddings today joining me. She is the CEO of Huzu, a specialist influencer marketing agency operating for over 11 years and newly formed Hume Management, a talent agency for social media influencers. Their client roster includes incredible businesses such as like Bunnings, Super Cheap Auto, Jimmy Briggs, HelloFresh, and Emma Sleep. I think that brands often miss opportunities when it comes to influencer marketing. And I'm really excited to have Natalie on here today because she is on a mission to help businesses harness the power of influencer marketing to grow their brand. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Well, wonderful. Great to be here today. So, so glad to talk to you. I know that you saw it because we spoke about it just before, but I spoke recently on my podcast and also on some content that I've been creating around how I got my first start Mm. in business really with influencer marketing. Had a few influencers reach out to me and were able to use them to grow my profile quite quickly. And so I was really excited to talk to you today because as much as I try to convince my clients to use influencer marketing, sometimes they can be a little bit scared. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's totally understandable. It's still relatively new, so it could be intimidating and there's a lot to sort of learn. We've been specialising, like you said, for a long time. And I learned something new. Honestly, there is something new to learn. Every month there's new developments of some form. Yeah, I bet it must be interesting keeping up with all of that because, you know, from TikTok to UGC, there's new features on Instagram, but then there's also new features over elsewhere and Mm -hmm. YouTube. And I guess you can have influencers with big audiences in so many different places. So you kind of have to be across all of those things. Yeah, and I think a lot of the people that are talking publicly about it aren't actually active in using it on a day-to-day basis. And so there can be some real mistakes conceptions as to one, how powerful it is, but also how to actually make it work. So it's always really interesting. It's kind of like the love to hate media channel that traditional media owners don't really want to talk about. And then there's a lot of people kind of making assumptions around how it actually works. And so there's a lot of mixed messages and missed opportunities for brands. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And so I'd love to dive in on that to get started today. So tell us about I mean, influencer marketing, I feel like it's been a really big deal in the US for probably quite some mm-hmm. time, like probably a decade or so. As always, it's a little bit slower to pick things up in Australia. But I really have seen the last like three to five years, like a huge mm-hmm. decrease in influencer marketing. Tell me a little bit about the changes that you've seen in the last kind of five years in the industry. Look, certainly we as a business have grown literally 100% year on year since I started specializing in it in about 2017. So it absolutely exploded. As far as major changes, obviously people are obsessed with different channels and so people's, I guess, approach and focus will go towards a specific channel. I think the biggest change is the amount of and diversity of creators that are out there and available to work with now. And rather than thinking channel first, it's really about going, how is your brain going to fit into their actual life moment effectively? So really thinking about the strategy first, as opposed to what I would call a bit of a spray and pray approach, you know, one brief, get it out to a whole bunch of people, hope that it's kind of working, not measuring it, not optimizing it. We have about 40% of our activity that we run is actually ROI tracked. And by ROI tracked, I mean literal sales conversions. Um, And so we can see very accurately exactly how much money it actually contributes to the bottom line of a number of brands. 
And so when you have that sort of data, it does change how you think about it and how much importance that you will put on it and how you would strategically plan it as any other media channel of importance as opposed to a bit of a feel-good It's definitely kind of a feel-good activity for a long time, but particularly in the last three or five years. It's now a dedicated channel. There's, you know, brands have dedicated influencer specialists in-house while still working with an agency. They really see the power of it. And so for us, that's been a really great nod to the industry overall. So I have seen like big developments in influencer marketing from a small business perspective and agreeing totally with what you say there. I think there's something that I see a lot with especially small business owners that maybe have startup kind of brands that are wanting mm-hmm. to work with influencers is that they do really have that spray approach where they're like, oh my God, this person has a big audience, therefore they're going to get me the results that I want, as opposed to kind of what you said before, which was that person actually has to, one, like of anyone that is promoting anything needs to be somewhat interested in what they're promoting in order to, you know, have a great return on investment, right? So mm-hmm. the reason that influencers have worked for me in the past is because I've had it. If you don't enjoy it, you don't have to talk about it. But if you love it, all I ask is that you talk about it kind of mentality, which is making yep. sure they actually enjoy the thing that they talk about enough mm-hmm. to talk about it. On top of that, when you talk about brands, like you said, it's like, is this actually going to fit in their routine? Are they actually going to remember to use it? Are they actually going to want to use it? You know, are they actually going to want to create content about it? Mm-hmm. And you're probably better off finding those perfect niches. Like you said, it's like a marketing strategy, right? It really is. And so you wouldn't just go on Instagram and just go like throw things up and hope for a yeah. version. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of decisions to be made as to the type of influences, the messaging, the type of, you know, this tone, the flow, what is the ultimate objective from the beginning that you should think about before you actually start identifying the influencers to work with. The biggest mistakes, you know, we work with all sorts of brands from a whole plethora of different industries and the biggest mistake that often happens is that they'll be that influencer that they want you to include because they know them, they follow them and without a doubt, honestly, almost every single time you will include them even though, you know, once you've gone through your identification process and vetted and so forth, they are not actually a right fit. Mm -hmm they'll be the one that lets the rest of the campaign down. So, you know, it's not about personal. uh, Of course, from a small business perspective, it's no doubt part of a relationship-based, but there's a lot of kind of decisions based on data Mm. and marketing insights that need to be made before you actually have a conversation. And then if you've done that really, really well and you've identified the right people, I think what people don't realise is we get a lot of no's. So we're working on both sides of the market. We've got a talent agency where we're managing actual talent but also managing the programs for brands. And so if we've gone and done that job correctly, then when we speak to influencers, it should be a right match but we do get a lot of no's. And so there's definitely a higher demand and so you have to have a really compelling reason for them to work with you as well. I am not a content creator at all, but it's an extraordinary, particularly with 95% of our activity now just being purely video. It's actually a big operation to create a big, you know, a meaningful piece of content. And they think maybe it goes for a minute, but to get a meaningful piece of content with key messages that's natural, that is engaging, connecting, it's actually harder to get something that's really small. It's much easier to set up a camera and just sort of blab on without much direction. It's much easier to do that, to get a really concise piece of media that's going to do a whole bunch of jobs. It's really tricky. 
Yeah, absolutely. And one of my very good friends is quite a large influencer. I see the amount of effort that she puts in to the content that she creates. It takes weeks. They they storyboard it and they have to get the, you know, the hair and makeup done. And then they might get there for the day to do the filming and then it might rain and then they can't do that day. And then they have to get back and they have to edit it. They have to have the right captions and then they have to send it off for approval. There's a whole process. I had no idea. I was like, well, you just get paid to like put some shit on Instagram, which is absolutely not the case at all. And I think really when you're looking at people-to-people art forms, so like this or, you know, graphic designers or anything like that, I think sometimes you don't understand the process because you've never done it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of misconceptions that can come into play about like the yeah. ease of it and I shouldn't have to pay for that and yes. all of this sort of mentality. Tell me about how the influencer marketing space has changed since UGC has come in. So, and you might want to explain what UGC is just in case. Yep, user-generated content. So, this is often, I guess, people that are purely commissioned for the sake of their creative content skills. And so, this might not be something that actually goes on their feed. It might be something that because they've developed these wonderful skills in a number of areas, it might be, you know, particular still shots, it might be testimonials, it might be just videos of the product actually in use in situ. You know, the cost of that from when you break that out to a traditional creative agency can be enormous. But, you know, when it's shot in a real person's home, it can actually be quite an effective use of creators' own skill sets that they're already, you know, well adverse at creating. And so often people will approach our talent just for the purposes of content that may never see the light of day on their own profiles. As far as changes go, it's actually been around for a long time. I remember commissioning a whole bunch of assets right back in 2017 around food and recipes that was on websites and even in magazines. So it's not new. I think it's just that people are aware of it as an opportunity. I think that maybe there was a peak potentially in COVID. We switched a whole heap of activity that was supposed to be shot, obviously, for various reasons for influencer content. It was commissioned to the creative agencies or the creative partners that influencers could do where creative agencies couldn't do because of lockdowns and so forth, et cetera. And so there's just this awareness now that this is actually a real opportunity and it can be quite cost-effective and done in a really authentic, natural way. You can honestly tell the difference between what is a brand-styled shot and, of course, very important and serves a different purpose. But in order to keep up with the constant flow of content pipeline that brands need for all of their channels, UGC is a a great opportunity. I definitely think having a strategy purely based on UGC is well worth exploring if you're a small business. And you can just start small, get really great at briefing, work work with your key partners and go-to. And obviously, longer-term partnerships, they become really familiar with exactly what you're after. You know what their professionalism is. You know what their turnaround time is. We've got a number of uh, UGC contracts with our talent that, you know, will never be seen on their channels. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, for me, I've only seen it. I mean, I've only noticed it probably as I've become more aware of it, mm-hmm. right? So I've noticed it so much in the last probably 18 months. And it's so great. And I love, like, I love witnessing uh, someone who I think, I mean, you would know, but they would, they do it very well is, you know, the Kardashians, of course. And so I see that the skim, <laughs> I see the skims ads. And yeah. they very rarely have Kim in them or anyone that you yeah. know, but they're lots of different shapes of women. They're wearing lots of different types of clothing. Mm-hmm. And I like watch start to end. I've been even watching, mm-hmm. there are some brands in Australia that, you know, they're just trying on, they're like literally just trying on swimsuits as their advert. And I'm like, I'm so in, I'm just so all in on yeah. witnessing the human to humanness of it, the imperfection of it almost that makes it so relatable. Are you finding that they're, obviously they're two very different types of marketing, right? So you have influencer marketing, which is an influencer using their own profile, using their own brand effectively to sell the thing or to help sell the thing. 
or their own pool influence, I guess. And then you have UGC, which is someone of influence potentially, or even just a normal everyday human that yep. is really great at video and content creation and that gives you the video so that you can promote it. Which one is best for an ROI or does it depend on the brand and the strategy? Look, it totally depends, but from an amplification point of view, so, you know, we're getting right into licensing and so forth now, but if you flight brand assets, so traditional created content that the brand has commissioned versus what an ordinary everyday influencer or content creator has done, the performance is always, always better on the influencer creator content. So I guess there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. The algorithm, just the natural, authentic way that creators produce content because remembering they've got like a 24-hour, I guess, feedback loop with their audience as to what works on their own channel. So they've got incredible instincts when it comes to what works and they're always refining that, keeping on top of trends. And so from a distribution point of view, UGC and creator content will always outperform, like it always outperform. Interesting. That's so cool. You know, that's probably why, you know, a lot of the traditional media agencies have felt a little bit intimidated by influencer work because they can create, and it's not to say that it's not a whole bunch of work, you know, there's an entire marketing team that's responsible for creating a number of assets. It's very consistent as it should be. And then they push that out to a number of channels. I guess the difference is that you're often working with a number of different influencers that have their own view on what works for their audience, their own instincts for creative their own homes and their own lifestyles and like you said their own bodies so it's a whole bunch of assets the best use of creative and to make the most of say digital advertising is to flight a whole bunch of content and for it to optimize to what works best yeah it's like coming from completely different sides of offense i guess is to the approach from the beginning yeah, interesting. Completely on its head. Yeah, totally. And you're so right. It's like any marketing. If you were to do SEO, if you were to do Facebook ads, if you were to do like posts on social media, TikTok, Instagram, it's all about trying it and then figuring out what works, like figuring out where your audience are picking up, figuring out what's getting the mm-hmm. most engagement, traction, views, likes, all that sort of stuff. And then over time, kind of niching down into the things that actually like, like guaranteed to work yep. with your brand that your audience are really picking up. So when you first start working with, say, a brand, Mm-hmm. Obviously, you will have incredible instincts now because you've been doing this for a long time. But when you first start working with a brand, how does it work? Do they come to you and like, we want this? Or do they kind of come to you and say, hey, we think we might need your help. And then you plan out the entire thing. Like, how does that usually go? How does that usually work best for a best result? A bit of both. It's kind of our mantra to challenge how brands do influencer marketing. They might have a misconception or they might have an idea of how it works. What we tend to do is a lot of guidance, a lot of expertise along the way, but what is the best thing to do, and we have been very successful at doing this, is running a pilot where we prove our worth. So, you know, okay, you want to work with this type of influencer for this type of reason, for this uh, objective. That sounds great, but actually in our experience, you would do it X, Y, and Z, but let us prove it to you. Give us three months to show you the results and then you can compare it with your own activity in-house or we'll get learnings from that to be able to build on. So it's definitely best done and always on capacity so that you can apply the different learnings that you get from that previous quarter into the following quarter and then optimize the activity. In other words, optimize is just a fancy word for know what worked last time, dial that up, know what worked, what didn't work last time and don't do that again and and work consistently. So you're better off working with a smaller group of people to start with and then expanding that out. 
Brands get quite addicted to it, though. <laughs> All of the influencers. <laughs> there has, not going to lie, there has been circumstances where we've had to say, no, 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 that's spend, that's, we're going to cap out. There's going to be a diminishing return on investment at that point. But yeah, start. Like any, that's like any marketing channel, though. You can, yeah. you can do that on Facebook ads. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I did see an article that was written, I think, by Mumbrella about you guys. And it said, while other industries and channels such as PR are kind of in decline, even paid social media amplification is slowing down. Ours is speeding up. So talk to me about how influencer marketing and or UGC marketing compares in relation to other paid marketing spends. Yeah, it's interesting. The reason why I got into this uh, industry, specialising in influence marketing myself in 2015, was working with a dedicated paid media. So I was the managing director of Society Social, which was really our entire portfolio of brands was just paid media on social. And it grew. It was a very successful. When I first started, there was three of us. And then by the time I finished up, there was 22 of us. And we really couldn't keep up with the amount of demand. But in that period of time, one third of my revenue was actually influencer marketing. Our key partner, the Remarkables Group, where I ended up after that, I just found that the growth of that particular part of our business was much faster and that was where the real opportunity. I think there is definitely a decline in the overall spend as far as, you know, on average of the entire industry for digital marketing for social media as a trend, or at least it's peaked. Whereas if you look at the growth curve of influencer marketing, it's still well and truly in that, call it the hockey stick trajectory. So that in my mind, there's still a lot of opportunities that are not being capitalized in. I can see it. I can see it on social. I can see what brands aren't doing yet. Um, and how many brands could benefit from influencer marketing. So as far as I'm concerned, we are not slowing down. PR, there's been a number of really high-profile PR agencies in Australia that have actually closed their doors, which is really unfortunate. I love PR. I think it's a really significant part of a marketing plan. I'm not from that persuasion. That's not my background. So overall, I feel like influencer marketing, we're just like literally just scraping the surface I would agree. And the more that I see businesses start to use influence marketing and have a positive result, the more that I think it's going to continue getting more and more and more. Whereas what's happening with other paid marketing is that, and I mean, I think the PR industry has been slammed by fake news, right? Like so much paid fake news, so much paid fake, mm-hmm. fake articles. Like you don't even know yeah. what's real anymore. So like, what's the bloody point of PR, right? And so there's this you know, other industries getting slammed. Like people are not using Facebook ads because there's no guarantee on return of investment, you know, same with like TikTok. It can be a bit messy. It can yeah. be, it's not guaranteed. And sometimes you just get a whole bunch of people that you didn't really want viewing your stuff and then hating on yeah. you. And so there's all these channels that are kind of not really guaranteed return on investments. And even if they are, you often have to spend a lot of money figuring it out. Whereas if I come to a, someone like you or to an agency like you and I'm like, hey, this is kind of my goal you know, you're going to match me up with the people who are actually going to help me, who will, and you you're, you have like a return on investment, you have a period, you like to prove people that this is the, the right thing to do and that it can help your business. And it almost feels like a safe bet in comparison to other paid marketing channels. Look, there's definitely ways to track and measure digital marketing that are unbelievable and, you know, really transparent so you can make sure that it's working for you. I think the difference is that... <laughs> It's digital native activity and so we can be quite nimble. So if, for example, we have done some analysis and based on who your target audience is and you instinctively think that these are the people that you need to speak to, but we have a different theory, 
it's a great philosophy to, okay, let's try and let's measure at the end and see who's right. <laughs> we have to be bold. We have to be brave. But it's the best way to do marketing. We can measure it. It's not inflated. We are, you know, actually looking at actual individual eyeballs. And if you want to grow, you have to be speaking to as many of those people as you possibly can. So, you know, we're definitely able to be very creative and fun and do some great activations. But at the end of the day, we can also measure it. That's the key. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not doing your marketing, any of your marketing channels like that, then that's unfortunate, but it, it should be the way to look at it. It is tricky. You know, I'm conscious that I'm speaking to a small business market. We work with retailers mostly, and they tend to have, I guess, the lion's share of media budgets in the country. It is hard and tricky to do on a smaller scale because, like I said, you do need to be speaking to as many people as your budget can allow for digital marketing or digital advertising on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok is obviously a great channel for that. But, you know, it is worth starting small and you don't necessarily have to work with a huge bunch of people to start with in order to get those eyeballs. Yeah. And I'd love to know your opinion on this because I think in the small business world, there are a lot of people who think that the bigger the influencer, the more sales they're going to get. I think there's a definite correlation between like, oh my God, if I get someone with like you know, 100,000 or 140,000 followers, like that's going to be a game changer for me. I'd love to know in your opinion, is that always true? Is it always like the more followers, you know, the higher the profile of the person, the more sales? Or is it, does it come down to a lot more than that? Yeah, a lot more than that. It's actually somewhere in the middle because there's also the perception that micro influencers will drive more conversions as well. We actually find it somewhere in the middle. So it's worth having a layered program of a number of different people. And that would be one of the things that we test because each brand is different. But really that sweet spot is usually in, you know, where sort of above 50, below 150, your budget's going to be able to go further in that band of talent as well. But again, that would be another thing to measure. And if you are a small business and you go for that, you know, that one big name and that's, you know, takes a significant amount of your budget, maybe don't do that. That might not be a wise move. But mm -hmm. being able to work with, you know, maybe three or four or five or six or, you know, 15 to 20 different influences of different types and then track it tag it in such a way that you can look at the results afterwards and go and know what worked. Totally. Absolutely. I could not agree more on measuring metrics. So how would you recommend like a small business owner? And there are small business owners that have budget for this. There are small business owners that are throwing budget yep. other paid marketing. How would a small business owner get started with influencer marketing? Like should they be cold DMing? Should they hire somebody like you guys to help out? Like I guess, and of course, like your bias, of course they should hire you, right? Or someone like you or an agency. Yes, of course. But let's say that they didn't. Are they running the risk of, because, you know, if you're in Facebook groups like like-minded bitches drinking wine and you'll see every day that someone, every day, every few days, someone's getting ripped off by an influencer. You know, someone's like, yeah. hey, some money, hasn't got what they yeah. promised, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, mm -hmm. is that the risk that you run when you don't go through, like, agency channel? No, I don't think you necessarily, if you're a small business, it, you know, you're going to be paying for the time that it takes to manage the program. And if you can save on that as a small business, absolutely. I mean, we do obviously know we've got very detailed 
lists, high converters, professionalism, you know, based on a whole bunch of reasons as to why we might, may or may not work with a particular person and why they may or may not suit this particular brief, et cetera. So there's a lot of knowledge and IP there. But if I was a small business, maybe before jumping to an agency opportunity, you can start a program on your own and then get it to a level where it can justify its own cost and then you can start working with potentially working with a partner. Think about it in an always-on way. Mm. Think about, okay, because it is time-intensive as much as there is some marketplaces that may automate the process. What often happens is the type of influences in those marketplaces aren't necessarily a right fit for you. But maybe the goal is to work with, start with one a quarter and work meaningfully with that person. When I say meaningfully, make sure you've got a detailed brief. You're really clear on your objectives. I heard you say this a couple of weeks ago, make sure that there's an actual agreement in place. And then once you've got that really right with one person and you've got your confidence up and you've had some learnings, okay, so the next quarter I might work with five or the next month I might work with five gradually build it up because you are going to need to dedicate some time to it. There's just, there really is no shortcuts. In anything in business. <laughs> yeah, you know, we work with up to 100 and 120 people per month. We're definitely peaking at this point and they're from a whole variety of backgrounds and walks of life. And it is still largely, we've got technology to vet, we've got technology to measure, we still need to pay individual influencers. We still need to spend time with them so they get the brief. We need to answer all of their questions so that they've got, you know, really meaningful understanding of the brand and the content ultimately performs. You know, we don't treat all of those 120 exactly the same, but just start somewhere, learn something and build those relationships. And look, if you're going to work with five, maybe one's not going to work out, but four might be fabulous. Mm -hmm. And then you will have a great foundation for working with them the next time with learnings. Yeah, absolutely. So, are places like, and this will be my last question on this before I want to dive into your business, but are places like The Right Fit, the really great place for a small business owner to yep. go and check out these profiles, not to go to some random Facebook group and <laughs> boast looking for an influencer, right? They should definitely yeah. go down yeah. more of those channels. Yeah, The Right Fit, that's a great example of where you might go and source some pure sort of content creators, videographers models, everything that you might need when it comes to creating either your own branded assets and content or looking for maybe micros or UGC. Yep. I wouldn't say it's a great place for building those bigger partnerships and opportunities that are really strategically led. We do use the right fit from time to time. Yeah. Four times a year. Again, if it meets the brief and what we're specifically after. Yep. But yes, definitely. So, I know that there was a, a lot of information around how cleverly you set up your business and run your team. Are you still running a remote team at the moment? Yeah, I am. Um, which is different to most other people in your niche. And I mean, I think it's genius personally, but how does that work for you? How, how does having a remote team work? Look, my first marketing gig was wow, 2006, 2007. It's actually for an IT infrastructure business and it was all about remote desktop, virtual desktop, VoIP. And so it was really expensive software. And, you know, fast forward this far later, it was a real privilege to be able to have the opportunity to be, to have your emails at home at that time. Even, it's not that long ago. No, I remember. Yeah. I actually ran my first agency called Pollen Marketing in 2009. I started that from home, entirely from home. I had retained clients. I had national clients. I was never intimidated by being a 
barrier. In fact, it just gave me an opportunity to do more work. People always said to me, don't you get distracted? I was like, no, no, I actually it helped stopping. That was my problem. So there's a whole number of, you know, communication tools and we set sort of boundaries around those. Like I love Slack because it shuts off. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't want to be bothering people after hours. WhatsApp creeps into, you know, creeps into your life and obviously we can't avoid that sometimes. But as far as I'm concerned, as long as you're running regular check-ins, you're making use of things like voice notes, like we probably talk and work in voice note mode an enormous amount each and every day. I've just never seen it as a as a problem. And for me, it facilitates the opportunity. Like I've got to take my dog to the vet on Friday afternoon. I can. I don't have to work. You know, I don't have to wait in two hours of traffic. I've actually got more productive time. I've made it a mission for the last 18 months to really prioritize my health. And so I, I make sure I weight lift twice a week and that's on my lunch break. There's a whole bunch of reasons why more productive, happy people probably work remotely. Yeah. I don't know about you, but certainly when I was working in a traditional advertising agency, like I mentioned, I would constantly have people at my desk. I would never get any work done. There was never opportunity for deep work. You know, when you're creating strategy and really thinking about an approaching need to go into a zone, I don't know what zone I go into, but go into a zone. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons why it works. My team is predominantly based in Sydney. And so we have in real life days once a fortnight all together. And then there's a couple of us just based in Melbourne. And so we try to connect in real life Mm. on the regular. And I think there's certainly a desire to have a dedicated office, potentially the beginning of next year. It just hasn't been a priority because we don't see it as a barrier to the quality of work Mm. we output. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've actually had a few clients that I've worked with over the last few years that have, I guess, predominantly like brick and mortar type businesses that probably, you know, it could have been done from home, but it was all just too hard. So they just kind of never bothered and recently have mm-hmm. transitioned to yes. remote working and they're like, oh my gosh, like this is so cool. And uh, totally, like when I was working in corporate, not only were people at my desk all day, like I was the problem for sure. <laughs> you know, like that, I would have been at your desk all day. <laughs> I was the problem, you know. And so like I would be like, wait, let's go to the kitchen and have a cup of tea. <laughs> like, you know, so I was just always faffing about. Yeah. And I thought to myself, they're paying me for, you know, eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. They could probably pay me for five. If I worked from home, I could get the work done in five. I'd be more motivated to get the work done in five hours so that I could actually spend my afternoon doing whatever the heck I need to do. You know, I'd be more motivated to work for five hours if I could not spend two hours driving. I'd be more motivated to work from home if, and there is that portion of like that kind of, I guess that that touched on is like that loneliness that that, that can, can creep in. And I think that the initiatives that you're having, you know, where you like, I, I talk to my team all day as well and, you know, voice drops and things like that. And, and we do like weekly meetings, like oh, cool. and catch-ups and chats and we share our wins and what's going on and what's hard in our lives. Like we, you know, we have all that. And I think mm-hmm. you need to prioritize that when you have a Yes, role. you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is a privilege though. Like you mentioned people with bricks and mortar stores, like we don't want to waste this opportunity because it is a privilege. It's incredible. And and if you ha- feel like you have to be looking over the shoulder of somebody and you're worried about their performance, maybe you haven't trained them correctly, or maybe they haven't been given the right direction, or maybe you just hired the wrong person. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which, again, guys, is a skill. <laughs> it takes time to develop that. Mm-hmm. We've, all, we've all had hires that haven't been quite the perfect fit. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just that's a whole other podcast. That's a different podcast for a different day. But yeah, we've all been there. So myself and Natalie. <laughs> I'm sure I have both been there. Look, 
let's say you're a small business owner. I'll clarify specifically what kind of small business owner that will probably be listening to this podcast. If you're a small service-based business owner, which is probably different to a lot of the brands that you work with, because I'd say most people, like you said, are in retail. Most people have a product that they sell. So if you're a service-based business owner like Mm -hmm. myself, you maybe have a couple of coaching programs or you know, you're a bookkeeper or a copywriter or a graphic designer, how could you or how would you recommend utilizing influencer marketing? Well, obviously, service-based. So I'm just going to think of a business or otherwise I'm not going to be able to... Be specific about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for making that so broad for you. <laughs> you're like, thanks for the no guidance here. I don't want to go into cosmetics because I know there's a whole minefield there is, at the moment. Would a florist... Yeah, a florist would be probably, yep, absolutely, yep, florist will work. Probably, uh, obviously, incredible imagery is going to be one of the key outputs that you're after. And so finding people in your area or close enough to where your products can be available to them, I would reach out to a handful of people and have a conversation around how you could work together. The reason why it's probably important to think about having a budget for that is if you're doing something purely on, we call it contra or collab, like non-paid, the reason why you probably want to think about having a small budget set aside for that and so you're thinking about it in creative output, in other words, number of images, number of videos for X exchange of value or X exchange of fee is that you can put an agreement in place and then everyone knows and they're on the same page and they're likely to be met. It's when it's casual and there's not really a contract of any form Mm -hmm. where things tend to go awry. So really try and think about it as creative assets or number of pieces of content that you're looking for. And they might come back to you and say, if this is your budget, they'll come back and say, oh, this is what I can deliver for that. And at least you've got a tangible outcome that will contribute to your marketing plan that would be really, really useful. And people love people, so maybe it's about getting them into your location, sharing the experience, talking about their experience because people love following, like as if they're going along the journey for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, think about what the experience you can offer, what the content output could be, and just start really small with a small group of people. But try and get to a point where you have some kind of agreement in place. The agreement also protects them. It's totally protecting you. Everyone needs to be on the same page. People's time is important. And so you want to add, you know, you want to add some kind of value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, when I spoke earlier about like-minded bitches drinking wine and you hear people complaining about these influencers, I think that you always read the comments and they're like, oh, no, I didn't get a contract in place, you know, and it's like, okay, well, that was your first red flag, yeah. first problem. It doesn't have to be a 12-page agreement, but it's if there's no fee involved, there's no agreement involved, then you can't dictate when, if you see drafts, mm-hmm. you can't dictate what messages are going to go in there, you can't dictate when it's going to go live, you can't dictate whether you get to use it or not, like, uh, then that's all best of, a bunch of wasted effort, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I don't know about you, but there's videos I share about my dog and my garden, and that's about it. I'm not great at it, but these guys are professionals at the end of the day. So work with them, leverage them, but you know, treat them with respect. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah, people are like, oh, can I send you some stuff? I'm like, you can send it to me, but <laughs> like, that's not what I do. So just so you know, like, that's not. I won't do the thing that you. I think you're hinting that I should do for you. So yeah, yeah, what I do. Going back to, say, licensing, for example, it's unfair to expect 
you know, unless you're offering them a holiday or, you know, quite an expensive lounge suite, it's unfair to expect that a video, a one-minute video, a, a 45-second or one-minute story, four high-res images and then usage on your website and on your socials forever and ever, like in perpetuity, on any channel you want, that is slave labour. <laughs> so it's, you know, making sure that you understand. The respect is met both ways. Yes. Absolutely. Otherwise, people on both sides of that equation are going to be let down. Mm-hmm. And that's not fun for everybody. Correct. Natalie, it was amazing to chat with you today. Thank you so, so much, guys. If you are thinking about getting started or you just want to go stalk Natalie and like what she's creating or what she's doing like I did, go and check out Huzu Management. And I keep saying this wrong, Hume, Human. Human. Human? Yeah. <laughs> I keep being going about Hume because it's the way that it's spelled, but Hume. Go and check out Hume and have a look at what she's doing. It's incredible. You've got some incredible talent on your hands. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was an honour to have you on here and to share your wisdom with my audience. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Steph. Babe, thank you for tuning into today's episode. It means the absolute world to have you here with me. If you want more, head to the show notes below to check out our latest free resources, along with the exclusive link for podcast listeners to book in a free 15-minute strategy session to find out how you can boom your biz.